Mentally Unscripted, Episode 32. More about mental models with Myron Weber of the Mental Supermodels Podcast. Well, hello, everybody. Today, we are welcoming Myron Weber of Mental Supermodels Podcast. In his day job, Myron Weber is the founder of Northwood Advisors. He helps clients solve interesting data problems at the core of their business. And he's also, as I mentioned, the co-host of Mental Supermodels. It's a podcast uh, dedicated to exploring the theory and practice, the art and science of mental modeling for problem solving and decision making. And welcome, Myron. We are very happy to have you here today. How are you doing? I'm good. Good. Glad to be here. I'm really excited about this episode. Uh, I was listening to some of, uh, Myron, some of your podcasts and just really in line with what we talk about in terms of mental models. And so just uh, it's nice to have someone who's exploring the same space to get some different ideas. So really excited for this conversation. I am too. You're the first other mental models person that we've had on so far. So this is going to be fun for us. Awesome. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about mental supermodels. Sure. So, you know, it kind of grows out of both myself and my co-host, Jeremy Thomas, the way that we think about things and realizing that maybe not everybody thinks the same way. Like when someone asks me what I do in casual conversation, I usually just say I'm a programmer. That's kind of how I self-identify. But if it goes a little deeper, then I talk about I'm a programmer and I also do management consulting and help businesses optimize their decision making and all the consultants speak, blah, blah, blah. But (laughs) really all of that grows out of the fact that I like to solve problems. I like to observe. I like to think in both creative and structured ways and form hypotheses and come up with elegant solutions to problems. So programming and consulting are really just expressions of what I like to do. And so Jeremy and I had worked together on some projects and we've become friends and realized that we have a lot of similarity. He's much more, I would say, applied and working from here's a situation and let's think about the model that applies here. Whereas I'm kind of nerdy. I just, I think very theoretically. And so I'm often coming from big picture theory down to, okay, let's create a model for the situation. So the two of us really flow together that way. And that's where it started. You do your podcast based on seasons and each season you cover a broad topic. So your first season, you will cover your six stage plan to go from strategy to execution. Just tell the listeners a little bit about that because I think it's great and I definitely recommend everyone go over there and listen to it. Oh, thanks for that. Yeah, it's really, season two is going to be very different. I'll talk about that in a second. But season one, as you said, was all about this strategy to execution model model that Jeremy came up with. So originally the six stage strategy to execution model was his. And you think about the strategy side has three stages where it's discover, map, and prioritize. So discovering what you want to accomplish. It's really business focused, although the ideas can be applied to personal life or other things, but we were focused on in business, the initiatives and the strategic goals or the projects that you want to do. How do you discover where you should be going? How do you map that into specific initiatives, then prioritize them. So that's the strategy side. And then the execution, you have to manage, then you have to validate, or am I on track? And then you have to measure the outcomes. So it's discover, map, and prioritize, then manage, validate, and measure. And so we spend, I think, 14 episodes going through those six stages and exploring them and both, again, theory and practice of how to think about that and how to apply it. We're not going to go into a lot of the specifics from that season here on this episode of the podcast. Folks, you can just go 
over super mental models and give it a listen for yourself. Sorry, I got to correct you there. Mental supermodels. Mental supermodels. I keep doing that. <laughs> mental supermodels. Right, sorry about that. <laughs> How did you guys decide to use that as your focus for season one? A couple things. Number one, it is related to the kinds of things that Jeremy and I have worked together on. So we, we had some practical understanding of how we work together. And Jeremy had written an article about the six-stage model. So he already had created that. So we didn't invent that just for the season. But as we started thinking about doing the podcast and what do we want to focus on for the first season, that was a pretty obvious thing for us to do because it fits so well with what he had recently written and the things he and I had worked on together. That makes sense. I do encourage all of our listeners to go over there and uh, listen to the introductory episode. I think you get an idea for the richness of what's going to happen for all the others. It's a really good discussion. And I love the application that you do of the mental models, bringing them into a real life scenario. So it moves away from the theoretical, which is valuable, but into something that can make ideas more concrete and more valuable. So I definitely encourage everyone to have a listen. Yeah, Paul. And that fits with a lot of what we focus on, which is this idea that, of course, we want practical solutions. And if you ask anyone, you know, they'll say, yeah, we want practical solutions, not just theory. But then I always ask, well, which practical solutions are more likely to succeed? The ones based on sound theory or ones that are not? And the, the question answers itself. Right. What was that aha moment when you discovered mental models and you said, wow, this is for me. It's congruent with my line of thinking. I want to start studying these. I don't know if there was one aha moment. There probably are, are a couple things. One that I'll briefly state, I do talk about it in the first episode of Mental Supermodels, but I'll just give the short version here. Essentially, I was asked to come in and consult on a project that was very poorly defined, not because it was anyone's fault. It was just they weren't quite sure yet what they were going to do or how they were going to do it. And a bunch of people showed up to a meeting and no one really knew what to talk about, but I had kind of in my head constructed a mental model. And I said, well, hey, let's just walk through a mental model of this because no one else really had a clear direction. So I just jumped in with that. And at the end, the sponsor said, that's amazing. I've never seen anyone do a mental model before. How did you do that? And I realized that this was something that came naturally to me and wasn't so natural to other people. So that was when I really started thinking about it in a more deliberate way. And the timing of that was also kind of around the time that I also in a more deliberate way, realized that I w had been making a huge mistake in my life up to that point. And that is that I had been spending a lot of time and energy focused on trying to be good at things that other people were good at. Of course, we all should work on our weaknesses, etc. But I was, I was really undercutting my own value by trying to do the things other people were good at when I had a whole set of things that I was good at that other people weren't. And I was really bad at these other things that I was trying to copy other people. So I really just transformed my thinking and started focusing a lot more on what I do well, which is apply theory to problem solving and, and then come out with practical applications. And so that has made a lot of things better for me. Did that become the model, not to over, overuse that term, but that model that you started to take to all of your consulting engagements? Were you already using that before you this first? Because it sounded like it was an aha moment, but was it more like the realization oh, I could do this or was it do it differently or it was more, oh, wait, this is what I'm already doing and I just need to do more of that. It's really, I think, the latter mostly, where I was already doing it, not consciously. So once I became conscious of it, I was able to do it more deliberately and then enhance it, get even better at it, and it fully embrace it and not apologize for saying, well, I'm sorry, I'm theoretical. It's like, no, I've got some ideas that come from good sound theory, and now we're going to apply them in practical ways. You're definitely in with Kendrick. 
kindred spirits here. Paul and I met on Twitter, and I think it was over reading each other's tweets dealing with mental models that caused us to start talking. So you're with the right people here. Nice. I wanted to ask you about the definition that you guys have of mental models on your website. A definition that you put out there, and I think this is the best definition I've seen. Mental modeling is simply the discipline of seeking to understand systems in a structured way so that when you act with intention, you increase the likelihood of achieving your desired outcome. My first question is, did you guys make that definition up? Uh, yep. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I wanted to unpack, when you talk about understanding systems in a structured way, can you describe that for us? Sure. In fact, I've got a mental model for that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so kind of a, a meta model, right? So I think that understanding systems in a structured way has two dimensions. One is to try to understand the thing essentially. Uh, I don't think I mentioned it before. My undergraduate degree is actually in political science. So I have a social sciences background in addition to being a programmer and all that other stuff. One of the valuable things that I learned in studying political science is the idea of breaking things down to their structures and functions. And if you really think about that in the world, there's a lot that you can do if you just make important distinctions between the structures and functions of things and try to understand them essentially. One insight that I had along the way was if you're talking about a mechanical system, structures and functions are all there are. If it's a human system, you've got to add a third piece, which is the psychology. So the essential dimension of understanding a human system is the structures, the functions, and the psychology. So you can, in an organization, you think about the departments, the hierarchies, that's the structure, the functions are the processes and the things that they do, but then there's the psychology of all the people in that. So that's one way of understanding systems in a structured way is the thinking about it essentially. But the other thing that I think is really important and, and often overlooked and also part of what I started to embrace once I realized that I was naturally doing it is to understand it analogically. To ask your question, what else is this like? In a business that I was involved in years ago when I was at earlier in this journey of mental modeling in an intentional way, you know, I was always bugging my business partners with, hey, let's think about how Costco runs their business. Because we were a technology consulting firm, nothing like Costco. But I'm like, what can we learn from Costco's business model that we could apply to ours or those kinds of things of thinking analogically. So that essential part and the analogical part is the model that I bring to how do you understand systems in a structured way. How do you think about this from a, I guess, a life perspective versus a business perspective? Are they very nicely aligned or do you really have to put your head into different boxes? That's a good question. I would say that because it's something that I kind of do naturally, I'm probably doing it all the time. I'll give you an example. I don't think I mentioned this earlier. I, we mentioned that season two of Mental Supermodels is coming up, but I didn't mention what it's going to be. The next episode is going to be about Bitcoin. Now, I developed a mental model for understanding Bitcoin purely for my own purposes. I wanted to understand it. I'll give the shameless plug here. I think it's going to be a great episode. And I think that there are going to be some things in there that I've never heard anyone talk about in, in how to properly understand Bitcoin. Should be coming out soon. But, you know, and how I apply it to myself, and this kind of goes back to some of the things I said earlier, sticking with some of the themes. In my own career, around the same time that I was sort of embracing the idea of mental modeling and doing the things I focused on, I was a partner in a small technology consulting firm. And I thought about a, sort of a three-layer mental model of how careers typically work. You've got the three layers 
in a company. You've got the people at the top who set the direction. You've got the people at the bottom who do the work. And you've got the management in the middle that manages aligning the work with the direction that's been set. And a typical career path, you start at the bottom doing the work. And if you're good at it, you move up to management. And if you're good at it, you move up to an executive position. And I realized I'm good at the top level and at the bottom level, and I'm horrible in the middle. I'm not a manager. I'm not good at managing projects or people or time or task lists or any of that stuff. So I had to set my own career path. I'm not a big company guy. I can't fit in that model. So even in the small company that I was a partner in, I was trying to do that. So I was one of the partners, but I was also managing a team and managing projects. I went to my partners and said, I'm not leaving the company, but I quit. And I'm not going to manage in ways that I'm not affecting. Again, I guess that comes back to business, but it was a very personal application in business for me, Paul, to your question of, is it just business or is it also personal? That was very personal for me, even though it worked its way out in the business. Fascinating. We had a conversation with another guest, Wizenstrap from Twitter a couple of weeks ago or a couple of episodes ago and talked about finding your career path. And I think about what you're just saying in terms of having a model and just reinforces the idea of having the value of thinking in models where you can understand that there's models of a career that could work for many and not for you and understanding what those models are as you reflect on what your own needs are. Again, reinforces the idea of why this thinking, this way of thinking is so valuable. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't even really thought of it in those terms. Like if I had gone to my business partners and just complained about not being happy, they would have cared, but how do we solve this problem? Whereas I went in with a mental model and said, this isn't working for me and this is why. And going forward, I'm going to both help set direction for the firm and I'm going to work on getting stuff done and I'm going to let people who are better than me at managing do the management. And that made perfect sense to them. And so we were able to implement those changes. That's a good rule of thumb to remember. I had a manager that used to say, don't come to me with problems, come to me with solutions. So if we went to him with a problem, he expected us to close with a solution or a proposed solution. So that's one lesson that I carry with me. I think that kind of dovetails pretty nice into my Next question. Going back to your definition, you said that the intention of the mental models is to increase the likelihood of achieving your desired outcome. And I think one thing that people overlook a lot or don't put a lot of effort into is figuring out what that desired outcome is. I think just looking at some of the political and social climate around us or just people going back to, like Paul mentioned, choosing a career and then what path you want to follow. I don't know that people really sit down and think about what do I really want out of this? They may think, oh, gee, I want to be able to have a house 2.2 kids and a wife, but they don't think beyond that. Do you have any mental models in mind to help people narrow in on that desired outcome so that they're putting their effort into the right place? There is something that I talk about a lot, and it comes up even in some of the episodes of Mental Supermodels. There's a psychiatrist and important thinker named Murray Bowen. He's sadly not nearly as well known as he ought to be. I think some folks certainly recognize the name Bowen Family Systems Theory. may know who he is, but he's far too overlooked. And he was focused a lot on mental illness, but then out of his work, there's a lot that can be drawn just for personal self-management and personal development. And I now apply his ideas in my own words. So the way that I talk about Murray Bowen's ideas would not be recognizable to him as anything he ever said. But you know, you just you think about an idea of really defining yourself, who you choose to be, and sort of putting your stake in the ground and saying, This is where I stand. Now I don't have to stand right here by the stake. I might wander in a proximity 
proximity to my stake, but this is where I stand and not having to, again, it comes back again, the theme of not just trying to be good at what other people are good at or doing what other people tell you to do, breaking away from some of that and being more self-defining in who you want to be, but then also being able to be flexible. And a lot of what Bowen talks about is managing your own anxiety. So if I'm feeling anxious about something, well, maybe there's a threat that I need to react to. Okay, that's fine. But maybe I'm imposing something on myself that I'm not comfortable with and it's creating anxiety. And we never think as clearly when we're anxious as we do when we're calm. And so thinking about how do we manage our own anxiety and think clearly and an important part of that is being self-defining so that we're in a place where we're comfortable. So looking for signs of discomfort and anxiety and then thinking clearly about how to address that, but then also being ready to be flexible and and try things. I I mean, I am always up for trying something and failing. I mean, I like to try and succeed, but I try things and fail all the time. And that's part of the process. You know, I wanted to explore this idea of having an end in mind. Uh, One of our guests, George Silverman, talked a little bit about the gap that he saw in mental models. He said, you know, they're a very good tool, but they lack action. And, And what we're talking about here is having an end goal in mind. And so the mental models can create structure. They can give you a way to assess the environment, develop ideas about what's missing or or look at your problem. He said, well, that's great, but then you need to be able to take action, which because ultimately, as you're saying, you want to change. There's an outcome that you want on the back end. Do you agree with that assessment of that mental models are missing that action component? Or do you just expand the definition to include some of the actions that you need to take to achieve your outcome? Well, humans are always acting. So I don't think that we need to put the burden of action on the mental model. It's kind of like the the map doesn't drive. The car the car drives us from one location to another, but the map helps us get from where we are to where we want to be. So the fact that the map is not providing the locomotion is not a defect in the map. It's that that's not the purpose of the map. I would say I agree, but I don't agree with that as a criticism. I agree with that as a description. Okay, interesting. I don't know. I guess that's my take on it. I had never really thought of it that before. Do you guys agree? Or what do you think of my answer to that? (laughs) Well, you know, I've wrestled with that in my own assessment. I really like your definition of the mental model as an understanding of a system. I guess I think of it as a a way to describe phenomena. I ask myself at times, are you doing it just as an academic exercise because of curiosity? Or does it actually lead you to fulfillment in some way, shape, or form? So if you're frustrated about your world and you're looking at your general behavior, you can model that out, can model bad behaviors that are leading to frustration and anger versus good behaviors that you could follow. Then if I'm looking at it from a broader existential sense, if I'm looking at the rest of the world, I could certainly find models and apply them. And we do that a lot on this podcast, this idea of trying to take a complex topic, let's be it policing or COVID-19, and try to think about ways in which models can help us understand. There's a satisfaction in answering that curiosity. Now, what do you actually do with the understanding? So maybe there's a little bit of a gray zone where I think there's an academic side that isn't just taking, I think, the best of what you've talked about, which is taking grounded theory and applying it for solutions. It's more of a wanting to understand. That's really what led me into mental models was being confused by my environment. And what you said about psychology really resonated with me because I had an interest in economics. I studied a lot of economics. I applied a lot of those models and they felt like they were routinely falling flat. And then I read Daniel Kahneman and I think thinking fast and thinking slow and system one, system two. And I st- all of these ideas start to pop. 
up and I go, oh, that, now I understand what I think is happening with people whose behavior baffles me beyond belief. That again is an intellectual curiosity. So maybe it's, as you said, it's descriptive. I can understand his criticism that if you're not applying it, if you're acquiring all these tools and never actually using them to get something out of your life, maybe it's a good way of teeing up the criticism. But I also like what you said, which is, is it possible we can just decompose the action and almost, you look at them, do you just look at maps every day just to understand where you could go? Or are you using a map to actually go somewhere? Maybe that's a different. Yeah, but I'm also really into letting people do what they want to do. Someone wants to look at maps all day because that's fun for them go for it. Yeah, you know, totally. Hopefully they can find a way to use that and pay the bills. And the fact that there are some people who are very theoretical and academic and maybe their role in the whole mental modeling ecosystem is that they are the theoretician. And when I'm looking for a theory that I can apply, they've got one out there. So I think all of those things are good. And I wouldn't want to put down somebody else's choice of how they choose to engage in mental modeling or any aspect of it because there's probably a way I can benefit from it as long as they can pay their bills. Let me just tunnel into that a little bit more. Do you see any negatives? If I think what we agree on this, many people struggle to either think in mental model terms or they don't know that they're doing it. I use the example you said, you're in that meeting, everyone's just sort of asking, well, how should we get this started? And you apply an approach and they're just amazed by it. Amazed, utterly amazed, yes. Yeah. And so I feel like we could all benefit from thinking in models more, which is one of the reasons we wanted to do this podcast. Do you agree with that statement? And if you do, or if you don't, like, what do you think are some drawbacks to thinking this way? I do think that we can all think better by applying mental models. Some people are going to do it more naturally and more easily than others, but everyone does it. A mental model is a representation in information of something in the real world, something actual or something not actual. It could be something imagined, something future that we want to create. But just like we use maps to drive, whether that's a printed physical map or it's the map in our head of how to get from here to there, everybody's using models. The question is for each person, what's the marginal utility for that person putting any time and energy into using models in a more deliberate and intentional way and thinking about their mental models? And the answer would be, I think for most people, they could get some benefit from that. Maybe not everyone's going to want to go down the rabbit hole the way we do, uh, and there may not be marginal benefit for them in that. But could everyone benefit from doing it better? Yeah, because we're all doing it all the time anyway. Anytime we act with intention, we have some sort of a model that says, I'm here and I'm going to get there and this is how I'm going to do it. And if it's really, really simple, I'm going to walk across the room. Okay, well, I don't need to go into mental modeling or theory of how to do that. I just do it. But as anything gets complex and there are multiple parties, structures and functions in psychology, yeah, you're always going to be able to do it better if you think about it deliberately and apply mental models. That's my belief. I agree. Hey, folks, I wanted to jump in here and say a quick thank you. We've had a lot of new listeners come on board in the last couple of months, and we're happy to see our numbers growing. And we know you have a lot of options in how you spend your time, and Paul and I are grateful that you're choosing to spend it with us. And it has us highly motivated to keep bringing you new episodes and improving the quality of our content. But we have a small favor to ask of you. If you like the show, please share it. And please go out to your podcast player of choice and like, follow, subscribe, or whatever. That way, our new episodes will automatically show up in your feed and then we'll get more attention from the podcast gods. Thank you, and back to the show. Technology has propelled us into this world where 
information overload or mental overload is a problem that most of us are going to deal with. Do you have any mental models that you would apply to help to get through the mental overload from all the information we're being bombarded with? This is a topic that I actually have thought a lot about and you guys will probably have to reel me in and turn out the lights uh, to, to, <laughs> to shut me down on this if I, if I go on too long. We'll, we'll hold up a red card. <laughs> got it. Got it. Okay. I was actually reading some historical things about the history of data networks. And, you know, one of the first data networks that existed was actually the optical telegraph. It was invented in France in in the, the late 1700s, like the Napoleonic era, where they would actually have towers with flags and relay information, these optical telegraph semaphores. It really sparked something in me. And so this is where I talked about the analogical approach to mental models, right? So this was an analogical, analogically derived mental model. I started thinking about the fact that other than this exception, which was the optical telegraph, you go back 200 years or less, and really for anybody, the speed at which information arrived over land was the speed that a horse could run or over water was wind or current driven. There was, that's the fastest information could get anywhere. And so information was slow and organic and tended it because of that to be very localized. So then I thought, well, has the human brain radically transformed in the last 200 years that this constant nonstop flow of information about everything happening all over the world all the time is something that I'm really equipped to take in. And I sort of thought about, okay, well, maybe, maybe the brain is just fine to do that. Or maybe it's not. How would I figure that out? So I decided I was just going to stop being plugged into this information overload model. But I also thought about it from a couple different perspectives. I believe based on just kind of if we think about the history of technology in the 19th and 20th century and, and now where things are headed in the 21st century, technology in the 19th and 20th century was inherently centralizing because it required large investments. It was industrial and then it was, you know, technology and even like atomic weapons and atomic energy. You got big tanks and you've got atomic weapons and you've got gigantic corporations building big things. But 21st century technology, I think, remains to be seen if I'm right, but it seems to be decentralized in terms of the ability of the internet, even though the internet is still highly centralized in a lot of way, I think the technology is pushing toward decentralization. So I was both thinking about how to limit the information overload and how to to kind of be more decentralized rather than centralized in how I get information. Then there was another subset of that, which I called OPA, other people's algorithms. I don't want my information to come to me through somebody else's algorithm. I want to be in control of how I consume information. And so it was kind of all three of those ideas together that essentially led me to cut off all social media. I already didn't watch TV, but of course the internet can be very TV-like, but I don't go to news sites on online. I knew that this was working a while back because I still listen to podcasts and that, you know, that's, I curate what I want to listen to and it comes at a manageable flow and all this. So I was listening to a podcast and one of the hosts said, I'm sure we don't have to say everybody knows by now what happened in Miami. I'm like, I don't know what happened in Miami. 
Miami. And so I, I go online and I search for news from Miami. And like a week before, a building had collapsed and I had no idea. Now, here's the thing. I think it's terrible that a building collapsed. I'm really sad for the people who died. And obviously, hopefully something can be learned about structural engineering to prevent that to, from happening. But was my life diminished by not knowing until a week and a half later about that? And the answer is no. It really wasn't. And so there may at some point be some way in which my life suffers because I don't have the latest, greatest, up-to-the-minute information. But so far, I would have to say my experiment is a win. I have a lot more time for other things. I'm less anxious about all of the bombardment of scary things happening everywhere in the world that actually don't affect me. And the important things I eventually find out about, but I, I don't need to know about them right this second. How much of an advantage has that decreased anxiety been? Oh, yeah, that's been huge. And, and I think... I think that was another important. Okay, so we we talk about theory and practice. I gave you my theoretical reasons for trying this, but one of the very practical things, as I've said, is in my day job, my clients rely on me to help them solve problems. And am I going to be a clearer thinker, less distracted if I'm less anxious, if I'm not watching the Twitter stream or the, I've been off Twitter for a long time, but uh, but you get my point. I'm not watching the constant news flow and able to focus better on whatever I happen to be doing at the moment. Absolutely beneficial in that regard. I'm curious about the concept of interference or noise over signal. You taking yourself off, you have, I think what Tim Ferriss may have called a digital diet where he goes on this diet and gets away. It sounds like that's what you're talking about in terms of your behavior. Do you still see some interference where you're still you're, you're still seeing some of that information? I guess it's it's populating into those areas even after you've curated it? Yeah. And, and I'm not trying to become a hermit or take some sort of monastic vow of never consuming information. I'm just cutting off the obvious things. And so, yeah, like I still go out in the world, I shop for groceries and I, you know, do these things. And so I go out and see things or I've got two sons, uh, one a teenager and the other early 20s. And, you know, they tell me things that are going on and that's all fine. That's again, that's organically uh, arriving information. And certainly anytime I'm online, I happen to see things for various reasons. But for example, here's one. I haven't been a Google user in a long time. I use DuckDuckGo for my search engine because it's OPA, other people's algorithm. YouTube is a vast wealth of information, but they have their algorithm. So if I want to know something and I think there's going to be a YouTube video, I can find this. I go to DuckDuckGo and I search for it and then I find the YouTube video and I click through to the video and find what I want. I'm not searching on YouTube and then getting sucked into the YouTube algorithm. I'm deliberately finding what I want. But yeah, of course, news and information still comes at me from time to time, and, and that's fine. I'm just being a lot more selective about the channels that I leave open for that. Do you use tools in your browser or on your computers and phones to help you with that, or is it purely behavioral? I, I mean, I know this about myself. I'll open a browser to go do X, and I'll feel the need to go do Y. Twitter is very much like, it's a dopamine hit. It's calling, it's calling my name like a bad dealer, right? So do you find tools that have helped out with that? Not really. I mean, I, I use an ad blocker, which, you know, I wish I didn't have to. People who are depending on advertising to make a living, I wish that I could support them. But the problem is that is really, number one, about controlling the information. And the way that they do the advertising is really distracting and annoying. That's number one. But also, number two, the model of how those things are delivered is broken. And this is a real nerdy detail. But if a virus or malware were embedded in a third-party ad, the 
site that I went to bears no liability for the fact that I got that, or at least law is not clearly established. If we had some sort of precedent law that said, if a site delivers malware to me, even if that was provided by a third party, they are liable for damages, that would be a much more sensible model. So I kind of use an ad blocker partly in protest against the broken model of ad delivery. I think it's one of the reasons I have the Brave browser. It's an interesting experimentation using blockchain crypto to to pay for ads using, I think, the Brave token. No, this is not an endorsement. I'm not paid. I'm not a shill, but it's an interesting concept. It doesn't, I don't think, address the issue that you're talking about, but there's certainly some other models that could be erected and need to, to help with, at least with the advertising model that's out there and probably a host of other, I guess, risks that we take when we're online that we don't, we're still getting to know. I think many people are terrified of getting a virus or having their information hacked, but they don't necessarily know how to defend themselves. And I think it's probably maybe different for the younger generation, but they're going to have to figure out how to improve some of these models, I think, because our lives become more digital as we're talking about information. You mentioned decentralizing your information sources. Intuitively, I'm thinking that would actually increase your information overload because then you would have to start filtering out duplicate sets of information. So can you just explain a little bit more about how you found decentralizing helps reduce your information overload? Well, first of all, I've dramatically reduced it overall. So that's one thing. But then, for example, I don't go to any major news site to find my news and then start scrolling through their headlines to see what they have to say. And clearly, whether it's right, left, or center, almost all news organizations have a massive bias that they're not even trying to hide in this day and age. And that's the way journalism used to be. It was obviously biased and no one hit it back in the yellow journalism days and historically. Then we got in the 20th century this pretense of objectivity. And now no one's admitting it, but just in the way they behave, they're just going all in on, we've got a bias, but no, 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 we don't. We're going to say we don't, but we, but everyone knows we do. So anyway, I avoid that. And it's a similar thing, right? I can go to DuckDuckGo and search for a topic and then click on the news tab and find news about anything. But I'm controlling how I go find that. And it's decentralized. I guess it's centralized in the sense that I'm using DuckDuckGo, but they don't have an algorithm that's trying to target me. They have their search algorithm and there are other options of non-algorithm search engines out there if I want to use one of those. So I'm simply controlling how much some central source can push their agenda or their algorithm on me as opposed to me saying, I want to know about this and I'm going to go search on DuckDuckGo, click the news tab and scroll down the articles and read the ones that I find interesting. Okay, that makes sense. I'm curious how interactions with people when they ask you about an event and you're not aware of it, are you accused of being ignorant or uh, ignorance? I'll just leave it at that because I feel like that's the charge normally planted at people or thrown at people who are attempting to restrict that information. I am ignorant. I embrace the <laughs> I embrace <laughs> the term. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's first of all, ignorant can just be descriptive, lacking knowledge, right? So right, I am right. lacking. Obviously, most of the time when people use ignorance, it's pejorative in its intent, but that's fine. Also, if there's something important and someone feels that I ought to know about it, that's great. That is the organic way that information flows. So please, you know, yes, I'm ignorant. Please enlighten me. But I haven't had anyone react too strongly. I've been doing this for about six months. And so as time goes on, I may encounter people who are furious with me that I don't know something they think I should know. But I mean, I've been clueless most of my life, so I'm kind of used to it. Fair enough. Yeah, definitely on the pejorative side is where I hear ignorance thrown around as, well, I can't believe you wouldn't want to know that or you don't 
have the desire to know. And I think about your model, you know, this idea of I can't even take in all this information anyways without just creating anxiety. So would you say you're describing more of a word of mouth model then in terms of importance of data? Do you have like selected trusted parties in your mind? If my son brings it up to me and he says, dad, you really need to know about this. It's past a gatekeeper. And now you start to think a bit differently. Yeah, it really is. So word of mouth from people I know, sometimes they're people I know and I trust them of sources of information or they're just people I know. And, and if something's interesting to them, maybe I'll go check it out or hear a stranger talking about something in the checkout line at the store or whatever, or something that I want to know and I go look for. That's really what it, I think, comes down to. Do you see a difference between national, local, and global? Because I think of the Nassim Taleb kind of distinctions where he talks about how you should be engaged locally, starting with their family. Uh, and I, I know I'm not going to do his model justice because I'm extrapolating out, but you think about locally and you spend time with your family, then you have a community that you're involved in in town, and then maybe you're in a city, then you're in a state, in a, a national country, and then part of the globe. So much of the information we get today is going to be at three levels above, right? You're going to hear about how the entire globe is crumbling because of global warming. And then you're going to hear about this policy that happened in Washington that you should know about because it's going to impact you. But then a lot of people, they have to be focusing on their family and they focus on their local area. Do you think at all about those different distinctions? I do. Yeah, absolutely. Something that happens in my house or my yard is way more important to me than something that happens thousands of miles away. And in fact, that takes me back to your previous question. I did have someone get kind of upset at me recently because he mentioned a trial and I didn't know what trial he was talking about. And it was, I guess, the House or the Senate was talking about what happened in Washington on January 6th. And I barely know what happened and I didn't know there was a trial or a hearing going on. And I mean, I know people do get kind of shocked by this, but Washington is a long way from where I live in Southern California. If people did something in City Hall of my town, okay, I might have an interest in learning more about what happened and is this something that affects me. But Washington is really, really far away from me. And I actually don't really care about that. Well, and I think that goes into a little bit about the theme of decentralization. If the internet is enabling us to have more of a localism, local community, local ideas, even connected globally, because the internet allows you to do that, but it also allows us to be hyper-local and understanding what's going on and be decentralized, it reasons that there's going to be a lot more value in focusing on what's local to you. Not that the central parties that are very powerful in Washington or further out can impact your lives, but the ones that are, you know, in your neighborhood have a massive impact on your life almost a daily impact depending on their decisions, right? Yeah, I agree. A couple episodes ago, we had a gentleman named Brandon Wark on our podcast. He is an organization known as Free State Colorado. He covers a lot of local political issues and he was talking about the same thing, about how it's just so much more impactful to be focused on what's going on right around you and worrying less about what a bunch of people in Washington, D.C. that you have no control over are going to do. Yeah, I listened to that episode. That was good. I totally agreed with him on that, obviously. So, Paul, did you have any other questions about dealing with mental overload? No, actually, I thought it was great to hear sort of your approach. And I think everyone should consider the value of having less anxiety in your life based on the fact that you can absorb all the information that's available to you, right? Or process it in a meaningful way. So no, I think that's a really valuable way of looking at uh, where we are in society. Yeah, it was excellent. So one thing that we like to talk about on our podcast is how we can use mental models to help people communicate better. You mentioned earlier that you realized early on that not everyone thinks the same way. How would you use mental models to help bridge the gap and improve communications with people who may not agree with you on topics? Well, yeah, I think that the ability to think in either the structured way 
when I talked about the essential thinking of structures and functions and psychology, or think about things analogically, is really helpful in communicating with people because sometimes a person that you're talking to might be more literal and being able to talk to them in terms of structures and functions is going to make the most sense. And in other cases, you might be able to appeal to them or get them to understand what you're saying by thinking more analogically. And then also, if you apply some of this mental models that we've talked about here or some of the techniques, whether they would, I don't know whether some of these things are actually mental models, but they're techniques that can be applied in mental models. Going back to Murray Bowen, who I mentioned, and the, the whole managing your anxiety and getting very scientific about being an observer of yourself. Because a lot of times, if I'm not able to communicate with someone, maybe it's because I'm doing something that's causing a reaction in them. And this is something that I also observe. A, a lot of these things came together chronologically around the same time in my life. I was consulting on a project for a very large organization. And I was I was mentoring someone to take over some of my responsibilities and, you know, growing an, another consultant up in the organization. So we go in and meet with the client and we talked through exactly what he was going to say so that he could take the lead in the meeting instead of me. And he went in and he said it and all hell broke loose and everyone was freaked out. And everyone then started looking at me because they knew I was the boss. And I said, exactly the same things that he said and everyone calmed down and was happy. And so that I had at that time been studying Murray Bowen and Bowen family systems theory for several years and applying those concepts. And so just the ability to manage myself, and I'm not even exactly conscious of what I did different than what he did, but there was something different about what I said or the way I said it. I, not what I said, but the way I said it or the way I delivered it. And it calmed the room down and now everyone's clear thinking and we're able to talk about solutions. And so again, I cultivate those things intentionally, but I think some people come more naturally than others to that. I think there's value in being able to deliver a message in calm, non-hysterical methods or manner that can really benefit in a conversation. When we had George Silverman on, he talked about this concept of going meta. When you're having a conversation with someone, you try to step outside of the conversation and look at it as a uninterested third-party observer, maybe something like that. You try to get at what's the point of this conversation? What mode are we in? Are we in the competitive win-lose mode? Are we in the educate and learn mode? And that could signal to you which direction the conversation was going to go. If you're in the competitive win-lose mode, you're probably going to end up in an argument and one person storming off mad. But if you're in the educate and learn mode, that could be beneficial because then you could talk to each other on an even level and learn from each other. So it sounds like what you're saying, it really goes along with that pretty well. I think so. I have not heard that episode. I've, I've listened to a handful of episodes of your podcast, but I'll have to go back and find that one because that sounds pretty interesting. But yeah, based on what I hear you describing, it sounds very similar. I like that idea of going meta and becoming the observer. Yeah. How much in your experience is what you're saying versus how you say it? Well, I think both are important, but in general, you know, people can tell when you're being sincere. I don't know who first coined the phrase. I, I've heard it from a couple of different people. The key to life is sincerity. And once you can fake that, you've got it made. But I, I'm not very good at faking sincerity. And so I think the fact that when I do tell somebody something, they know that I'm being sincere. And like one of those similar settings in a business meeting, business examples, I think are clearer in my mind, but the same things apply in personal interactions. But I was in a room with a bunch of people and there's a big problem we had to solve. And I said, I know absolutely this is a solvable problem and I have no idea what that solution is, but we're going to find it. And everyone was just really happy with that answer. Of course, they'd have been even happier if I'd known the solution 
solution, but the fact that I was confident that this is a solvable problem, that I was honest about not knowing what the solution was, we're going to get there, let's get busy, and then laid out a structured problem-solving approach, and everyone was ready to work on the problem instead of being afraid that maybe we can't solve it. So you're saying honesty and transparency worked? In that case, they did, yes. Uh, humans seem to like that. I, they, they like the sincerity, the honesty. Uh, we're, we like that. We're getting up close to an hour here. Got a few more questions. Do you have a few more minutes to hang on? Yeah, sure. These are just kind of fun. You can just run through them quick questions. Okay. But like I mentioned, the goal of Mentally Unscripted is to make people better thinkers and better communicators. The last year, year and a half has been pretty eventful, probably the most eventful 18 months for most of us. What is the biggest lesson that you've learned over the last year and a half? Question everything. I'll give a an older example that, you know, I think the how to apply it in this day and age will be obvious. So back in the late 90s, a friend of mine, ask me what my cholesterol levels were. And I said, I, I don't know. And he freaked out that I didn't know whether my cholesterol was good or bad and I need to go get tested and, and all of this. So I wasn't consciously doing mental modeling then, but I was implicitly doing it. So my mental model at the time was, number one, the human race has survived all this time without chemists to tell us what to eat. I mean, the ability to measure cholesterol is a very, very modern innovation. And all of the messages about it coming from the mainstream media media and medical establishment, they lacked any nuance. So I actually went back and I found the Ansel Keys study, the, the five countries study. I mean, these were the foundational studies about why we should all be afraid of cholesterol and a number of other studies. And I, I was only doing this for myself. I didn't document this all. I'm happy to be corrected if someone has contrary evidence. What I found was that indeed they found a link between cholesterol and heart disease, but they either didn't study mortality, like at what age you die, or if that was part of their data, you actually live just as long or longer if you had high cholesterol. Again, I stand ready to be corrected, but I think even more modern research has just validated this. So the same articles that were published could have either said cholesterol increases your risk of heart disease or cholesterol may help you live longer. And they went with one narrative and not the other. And so I could get roasted for that. But you know, I, when you think about how to apply that in the things that have gone on in the last year, I just question everything and I go back to data and sources. And when someone wants to tell me that I should never look at information and draw my own conclusions because I'm not qualified, I just ignore them. And I go look at data, do the analysis, and I draw my own conclusions because I've got a pretty good track record. I'm imagining an ad, you know, it's 2021. The ad says how to increase your cholesterol by 60 points because they went a different direction. Yeah, right. Exactly. We definitely agree with the uh, question everything, mental models. It annoys some people, but I think it's served me well. Imagine you woke up tomorrow in a brand new world. What would that world look like? It's a hard question for me to answer. I'm not a prescriptivist. I'm a Hayekian where I think order needs to emerge. So whatever world I would describe would be utterly flawed. But since I try to play the game, since I live in California, the new the new world tomorrow, public employee unions would not be allowed to make political donations. That would move us toward more sensible policy. We could definitely use that right now. Uh, I'm going to sleep. I'm hoping to wake up in that world. All right. Well, we're here at the end. So just let everyone know where they can find you, what to expect when season two of Mental Supermodel is supposed to come out and social media, anything you want to leave us? Yeah, it's going to be out this month, August of 2021. Like I said, 
said, the big Bitcoin episode to kick off season two. The best way to connect with me, I'm not on, so I have a Twitter account. I haven't looked at it in several years, so don't go there. <laughs> I do connect with people on LinkedIn and having the name Myron Weber makes it easy. I hated my name growing up. Now I realize it's an advantage. People can find me on LinkedIn pretty easily. And I'll give you guys the link for that in the show notes as well. Or if someone wants to get in touch with me and they're not on LinkedIn at all, they can email me. My email address is mweber, that's M-W-E-B-E-R at northwoodadvisors.com. Northwood Advisors ends with O-R-S on the end, dot com. We'll include all of that in the show notes. Well, Myron, thanks for coming. This was fun. Like I mentioned before we started recording, this probably could have turned into a four-hour podcast pretty easily. So I think if you're up for it, we'd like to have you back at some point in the future so we can talk more mental models, can talk more about your season two of your podcast. Stay in touch. That'd be great. I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, really appreciate Myron. Well, that will do it for this episode of Mentally Unscripted. But hey, you're one step closer to kicking all this tribal garbage peddled by the politicians and the media to the side and seeing the world for what it really is with intelligence and rationality. Take care. To get a copy of today's show notes and links to the resources mentioned in today's episode, go to mentallyunscripted.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for the Mentally Unscripted newsletter so you'll be the first to know about the new episodes and get bonus material not available anywhere else. That's mentallyunscripted.com.